Coming up on The Exam Room. So my friend, you know, typical vegan at the gym, she asked, well, do you have any health issues? Do you take any medications? I said, yeah, I've got a family history of heart disease. Uh, I've got all the markers, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, taking medication on both. And she said, oh, change your diet. Read this book, The China Study. I said, you're full of I mean, that, that's a hippie diet. You're, you're crazy. Well, she kept nagging. And um, finally, you know, she got the book for me. I started reading it. The science seemed really sound. I said, okay, let me try this out. Went and checked my blood, stopped the pills, changed my diet, checked the blood again a month or two later. First time in my life, everything went into total balance. Mm. I was sold. Boom. I'm going vegan. Wow. After that, I uh, started going to some conferences, meeting other people, and within a couple of years, realized, as most of us do, you know, if the world went plant-based, it solved 70% of the world's greatest problems and leaves trillions of dollars left over to solve the rest. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Mesquite, Texas, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Bordeaux, France. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 96 of season 6, number 492 overall. And today we are going to be putting the spotlight on a gentleman who is unlike anyone else really that we have ever had on the show. He is somebody who was incredibly successful in the business world. We're talking about amassing a fortune well north of $100 million and he leaves it all behind. He leaves his ultra successful businesses behind to do some good in the world. He wanted to change the world. He becomes a philanthropist and eventually he gets into animal rights and advocacy. And really that may not have happened for him that end of things had it not been for a conversation that he had in the gym about 15 years ago or so really made him stop and think. And so this man who has exceptional generosity and a tireless work ethic to help others began to realize that he now needed to help himself. Because after growing up in the land of Crisco and red meat and Coca-Cola was king there, Jim Greenbaum knew that he had to do something. He had to do something to avoid the same fate as others in his family, those who were stricken with heart disease. And already Jim was struggling with high triglycerides and high cholesterol. And so after this conversation in the gym, he was given a copy of the China study by our friend T. Colin Campbell, and he began to make some changes. And it only took one month for everything, in his words, to go into total balance in his life for the first time. The effect here was so profound that he shifted the focus and the vast resources of his foundation to moving the world toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle. And so Jim's generosity will be on display today. He is the man without question. He is unlike anybody I've ever met in my entire life, and he is proof that generosity is alive and well. 
And with that being the idea of the show today, that generosity is alive and well, let me tell you how you can be generous and change the world. Because it is Giving Tuesday. So we have a super opportunity to help support the exam room and all of the life-saving work that we do here at the Physicians Committee. Because on this day that the show is released, it is Tuesday, November 28th, better known as Giving Tuesday. And this year, your donations will be matched up to $15,000 thanks to the generosity of some very generous Physicians Committee's members who want to see enough money come in to continue continue to power our work and take health to the next level. And so I know that's what I would like to see. And I'm counting that that is what you would like to see as well. So let's make sure that the exam room reaches another 20 million people and that plant-based nutrition is regarded as the pinnacle of modern medicine so that we can finally end these needless animal experiments as well. It is within our reach and that is why we are pushing for change. We push for change every single day. And you can be a partner in creating this monumental change by making a donation on this Giving Tuesday and it will automatically be doubled. So $20 becomes 40, 50 becomes 100 and 1,000 turns into 2,000 just like magic. Get in on this doubling automatically. Get in on our life-changing work by visiting pcrm.org er. That is pcrm.org er to make your donation. And I would like to thank you so very much for being a big part of this change and helping us create a healthier and more compassionate world. Again, please take advantage of this matching gift opportunity and supporting the Physicians Committee's life-changing work and the Exam Room podcast by making a tax-deductible donation at pcrm.org er, and there is a link for you to do just that right now in the episode notes. And right now, let's turn our attention to our generous friend of the day. He is an extraordinary human being and one I can't wait to get to know even better. This is the one and only Jim Greenbaum. It is a pleasure to have you here. The pleasure is mine. I'm disappointed I don't get to see the pink outfit from yesterday, but I tried to figure out what to give the guy that has everything. And since you're wearing green, I figure this might go well. No way. Check it out. We got panda socks with the gr- I'm going to wear these with pride. We're going to Instagram these for sure. Yeah. And well since done. I wasn't sure what color you'd be wearing today, you know, I had a backup plan, which you're welcome to take for other projects. We got double pandas. Double pandas. Okay. Okay. We're going we're gonna to put these up at the exam room on Instagram so you guys can see this, but I'll hold this up. Panda, panda, panda. That is, thank you, Jim. You're quite welcome. That is amazing. We're just going to put those right there for the rest of the interview. Greenbound coming through. I like this guy. But you're going to fall in love with him now because of your story. Um, you were just telling me before we hit the magical record button that uh, you are already retired from the corporate world. You left the business world 20 some odd years ago. And you now are just entering an age when most people are retiring. What made the decision 
what drove you to the decision to leave that behind so early? Essentially, when I first went into business in my early 20s, the goal was to make as much money as quickly as possible to use it to change the world. I was debating, you know, what do the political route, uh, phil philanthropy route, wasn't quite sure, but, uh, you yeah, so proceeded in business, failed a bunch of times until I finally did it right. Then, in my early 30s, I was watching a newscast, uh, I think it may be of NBC News Nightline or something like that, of a guy in Ohio that was going to Romania and getting kids out of these horrible orphanage conditions. And it dawned on me, my business was always already very successful at that point, so I said, when am I gonna actually do something with my life versus telling everybody, oh, I'm just trying to make money to do it. So I said, yeah, I'm 32, 33. Yeah, you spend 20 years growing up, you know, 20 years in the business world, then out. So I said, okay, I'll give it till age 40 and leave then. Went and told my associates and business partners, said, hey, you know, got about seven more years left and I'm out of here. You gave them seven years notice? Yes. What, did they think you were serious when you- Yeah, when I, you, I told them I was very serious. And okay. The year before I left, we actually were in the middle of figuring out how to transition the company so I could do it. Yeah, most people give two weeks, you gave seven years. But, what line of work were you in? Uh, the company I did well in was telecommunications, long distance services. But that was back during the day where we could actually charge you per minute for making long-distance <laughs> calls versus it now being free to everybody. Gotcha. So got out at the right time. Yes, you did. You definitely cashed out at the right time. But like, did you always, growing up, have this desire to do good in the world? I mean, it sounds like you had that 20-year work plan and then, you know, go and be philanthropic. So what compelled you to really try to change the world from such a young age? And looking at it, I think I came out of the womb always fighting injustice and inefficiency. Those are the two things that just drive me crazy mm. to this day and always, so. So what were some of the problems that you had kind of identified from early on that you wanted to rectify? Well, as a young child, I'd, see my, you know, I'd get in trouble with my parents, I'd argue. My you know, siblings would get in trouble. I would argue their case in front of my parents why they shouldn't be in trouble. In the end, they wouldn't be in trouble, I'd be in trouble for arguing. Mm. Growing up in Louisiana, you know, my parents would say, you know, you respect your elders. You know, here this, you know, six or seven-year-old said, I'll respect my elders if they deserve respect. I may show respect, but not necessarily respect. Didn't go over too well. Yeah. So, bumping heads and the racism I saw in the South, uh, you know, it was a lot there. So I was combating that uh, many times. And originally was looking at maybe going to law school and getting involved in maybe civil rights law. Yeah. And uh, last minute, yeah, applied to law schools, top-tiered schools, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, thank you very much. They all turned me down. <laughs> a couple of other good schools did say yes, but in the last minute, I decided right before classes began, you know, the heck with this. You need a lawyer, hire a lawyer. Let me go into business instead and make money that way and then use that money to change the world. And, I mean, let's not sugarcoat this. On your website, you put this figure out there, so I don't feel too bad asking you this question. When you say that you did quite well, how big of a fortune did you amass? When we sold the company, the net worth was approximately about $133 million. $133. You know, uh, clearly. It's not that way anymore. It just keeps going down, down, down. Well, it's because you've been, you know, giving back yeah. as you had planned to do. That's, I mean, that's, that's an incredible figure. What are some of the things that you have been doing with that $133 million? Did you immediately go and try to identify, as you saw on that Nightline special those years earlier, did you go into like improving child orphanages in uh, foreign countries? What did you do first with that money? The year before I actually left my company, I spent a lot of time online just reading all the news stories I could, learning what's happening in the world. If you want to change the world, you need to first figure out what's going on in the world. 
And I really was trying to find the areas the most suffering, the most need, where I could make the most difference. Kept looking at different projects, wasn't sure where I would start. And then a friend of mine uh, who knew I was searching said, Jim, I met these people you should probably talk with. And it was uh, two young women that were creating an organization called Kids Save, or Kids Save International, was getting older kids out of horrible orphanage conditions in the former Soviet Union and getting in place for adoption in various countries. And I met with them, looked at the project, debated, is this where I want to jump in or not? And I realized I got to start somewhere because I wasn't mm. sure where to start. And it was close enough to the issue on orphanages. I said, why not? So I jumped in both feet and got heavily involved with them at the start. And it wasn't long after that that I'm on a you know, site visit in Moscow with them and meeting with people in these orphanages. And the administration found the horrible conditions, the suicide rates 10% within the first two years after the kids get out. The kids in the orphanages, they would get out and they when would... They get out at age 16 and there was like a 10% suicide rate, high percentage of the guys end up in criminal activity, uh, the girls in prostitution. It dawned on me, hey, you know, big brother, big sister kind of program. Why don't we implement something like that so they have a, a network when they get out? And so we, I helped set that up. It wasn't soon after long after that that I heard about human trafficking and this would be back you know, around 1999-2000 uh, before it was all over the media and I was horrified and uh, then immediately transitioned and started working heavily in that area and that was my primary focus for about 10 to 12 more years uh, was working on human trafficking and combating human trafficking. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you went around and, and you helped out so many different places, but then you also got into animal rights, animal advocacy. And I think that's probably how you popped into the world of a plant-based diet and got introduced to the Physicians Committee. Would that be correct? Little twisting around in a different way. Well, All right. I mean, Give it start, to me. Started with the Give human rights me. areas, um, human trafficking, slavery, female genital cutting, mutilation, child marriage issues, gender-based violence, Middle East, North Africa. When Ebola came around, I had several projects in Liberia at the time. I reached out to find out how they were handling it. I wasn't thrilled with the responses. So I jumped in, spent about six to eight months doing nothing but work on, on Ebola when that was happening. Um, then jump ahead about 14 years ago on the vegan journey. Yeah, there I was at the gym working out one day. And you know, growing up in Louisiana, we've got the worst diets at any place in the country, if not the world, if it didn't have Crisco in it, it wasn't food. <laughs> um, so, you know, Crisco and meats, that's, that was everything. And right. Coca-Cola. Right. Um, so my friend, you know, typical vegan at the gym, she asked, well, do you have any health issues? Do you take any medications? I said, yeah, I've got a family history of heart disease. Uh, I've got all the markers, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, taking medication for both. And she said, oh, those medications are horrible for you. Just change your diet. Read this book, The China Study. I said, you're full of I mean, that, that's a hippie diet. You're crazy. Well, she kept nagging, Deanna Bramble. And um, finally, she got the book for me. I started reading it. The science seemed really sound. I said, okay, let me try this out. Went and checked my blood, uh, stopped the pills, changed my diet, checked the blood again a month or two later. First time in my life, everything went into total balance. Mm. I was sold. Boom. I'm going vegan. Wow. And, um, yeah, so that, that was great. And... Uh, after that, I uh, started going to some conferences, meeting other people, and within a couple of years, realized, as most of us do, you know, if the world went plant-based, it solved 70% of the world's greatest problems and leaves trillions of dollars left over to solve the rest. So over the last seven or eight years, I've actually transitioned where our foundation now has a very small component of 
projects in the human rights area that were legacy projects that we're still phasing out. The rest is all focused on moving the world to plant-based diets and vegan lifestyles. Do you think that there could be some sort of a trickle-down effect with your new endeavors here with the foundation and that's still somehow benefiting those legacy projects that are being ramped down? Do you think that there would be a trickle-down effect? As far as trickle-down, I'm nagging and working with and trying to get those other organizations to incorporate more plant-based nutrition in their programs. One of them, Tostan, my favorite organization in the world as far as work that they do as far as changing social norms. You know, they've been in probably eight to 10,000 villages already throughout Africa with their programs, getting to incorporate this module in on nutrition. We're working on it as you speak. What was, what are some of the things that you've seen in the health arena that really opened your eye beyond just, you know, your own numbers and, and the improvement that you saw personally, but like, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see that we're facing that really weren't even on your radar until you started down this path? And then when you heard about them, you're like, holy crap, like that is insane. Well, the one thing that, well, back in part of the vegan journey, my whole life, even as a young kid, it bothered me they were eating animals. And you know, at fifth or sixth grade, they're teaching about various species and mammals and reptiles. And you're hearing pigs and cows are mammals like we are. And I'm thinking, well, that's, we're eating something that's really close to us. That sort of seems wrong. But I bought in what Melanie Joy refers to as normal, natural, and necessary. And so it wasn't until I made the change that I was finally able to realize, wow, the suffering that's been caused by the death of all these animals the statistic that stands out to me that still just almost brings me to tears every time, the number of land-based animals that we kill every year for food in the world, which you know is you know, approximately 85 plus billion, mm-hmm. at B with a billion. Mm-hmm. Literally almost as many as the number of humans that have walked the planet since the beginning of time. Mm. That, two to three trillion fish a year. It's just the suffering of the, on the planet and life for the animals and human life because of the consumption of these animals uh, unhealthy it is for us. It just solves everything. It's one of the few things that solves so many problems. I can't really put my finger on that. There's one area I've learned about or another area that hit me more. In fact, I've been an executive produ- producer on quite a few documentary films. And people say, well, gee, you have so much knowledge in these areas. I say, well, most of it is the statistics you're hearing in these documentaries. I'm just remembering a lot of yeah, them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, those numbers, I mean, that you just threw out there, just are mind-boggling they're almost hard to comprehend 85 billion and then you're talking trillions of fish and i don't think that it takes a rocket scientist for somebody to surmise there that those numbers are completely unsustainable and yet every year we go through them time and time and time and time and time again what's the end game like where does that end it ends in doom. I mean, I hate, I wish I could paint a rosy picture, but if you keep going down this path, completely unsustainable, and we're screwed. We're screwed. I agree. And something I challenge other vegans to do, something I did about two months ago uh, one day, is I sat down and tried to calculate how many animals died over my lifetime because I was so ignorant for so long. And it just, it, it's over 8,000 animals. It just, to this day, I just, I feel horrible. 8,000 that you consumed? Is that, is that, that the number I, that you came that up with? The number I came up with approximately around 8,000. Wow. wow. Which is horrendous, and there's no way to make up for that. Man, let me ask kind of a, let me actually turn and look at you for this one. Um, this is a, 
I just want to get to know who Jim Greenbaum is here because like you were so successful in business. And when you're talking about $133 million, the picture that the majority of people think of when it comes to that level of wealth, that success in business is greed. How is it that you were able to avoid those pitfalls and be so generous with your time, your, your affluence, your just drive to help, whereas other people go down a much different, darker path? I was always driven to make change and to make money to use it for change. However, as far as consumption goes, that in itself has been a journey. The moral dilemmas I face you know, most of my life, is it okay to spend this much money on something? Um, you know, when I sold my company, I had a business partner that was into buying you know, airplanes, and he was making money on it because they would charter it when we weren't using it. So I finally went in with him on a private jet, and you know, charters weren't that great. And I realized my time's not that valuable. It's like, no, I just can't rationalize that. I used to live in a huge home when I was in the San Diego area on a lot of land. And even though I would always tell people that come over to the house that I give more money away every year than I'm spending on living. And I always felt embarrassed because my home was so large. And when I would meet nonprofits I was working with, you know, let's go to a Starbucks. I wouldn't bring them to the home. That always troubled me. And about seven years ago, I moved to the L.A. area, got rid of the huge home, downsized, you know, still driving my uh, – in fact, at one point in time, I had several sports cars. Year, you know, a decade or so ago, started phasing out of that. And uh, then I uh, at, you know, moved to L.A., and I've got – you know. Much much smaller home, less than a quarter of a size home from mm. what I was living in, and you know, very small parcel of land compared to where I was. I drive my uh, Toyota. Um, gosh, what blank of the name of it? Not Prius. Hatchback, not Prius. Uh, f- not Rav Four. Rav Four. Yeah. Love my Rav Four. Yeah, man. That's you got great. the uh, the prime hybrid. That's what my wife and I have: half electric, half regular combustion engine. When I went to the store seven years ago to get a car, I was going in to buy the hybrid. Yeah. Got out, got home, out of the car, and I realized, wow, what a great deal I got on the car. Oh, my God. It wasn't the hybrid. I'm, like, shocked. <laughs> so I kept, over the years, I kept looking at going back and going to the hybrid or all electric. I'm driving so little these days, three to 4,000 miles a year. Oh, wow. Uh, that uh, you know, it just hadn't made any sense. The car just normally sits there most of the time. Right, right. What's the point? Man, that's, that, that's just incredible to me. And you get to go, I would imagine. I mean, you have seen a lot of the world. Let me ask you just kind of a travel question. When it comes to healthy eating, where would you rank the U.S. in terms of just access to high-quality, healthy food where it's kind of normal to be eating that way? I have no clue. Most of the travel I've done over the last two decades has been for the projects that I work on, gotcha. which means I spend a lot of time in places in Africa where the scenery is not the scenery that you normally go to Africa to mm, see, mm. and the villages are remote areas that are not the most fun areas. So no idea the answer on that. Looking forward to do more recreational travel down the road, but yeah. uh, that hasn't been the fate lately. But even in the United States, I had a, one of my kids was in school, I think in Prescott, Arizona at one point. Uh, several years ago, and I went down there when I was seeing him, you couldn't find a vegan option anywhere at any of the restaurants. I mean, you couldn't get a salad that they would could do vegan. It was mm. unbelievable. So you end up finding a grocery store and just getting a few things there. So, you know, food deserts around this country, there are pockets where, you know, in L.A., I'm in West Hollywood, we're spoiled. I mean, yeah. I'm in walking distance to probably five or six of the top vegan restaurants in the country, walking distance from my house. Yeah. 
You know what blows my mind is like we live in this well-developed nation, one of the leaders of the free world, and there are pockets of the United States where people have to organize bus trips just to get to a grocery store. We're not talking about going anywhere fun or luxurious for a vacation. We're talking about chartering a freaking bus to go to get groceries because all they have access to within walking distance is a 7-Eleven, a convenience store, a quickie mart, something like that, where it's nothing but junk food, nothing fresh, maybe a couple of pieces of fruit, but that's not going to tide you over. That doesn't have everything you need. So the families that really want to try to eat healthy have to move heaven and earth to get there. And that to me is just unfathomable and just a shame. It should not be happening in -hmm. a country like the United States. It is mind numbing to me that that happens. Another interesting fact I came across more recently, but you probably have more knowledge on this than I do, I would assume. I'm not sure if my facts are right, but apparently, you know, yeah, everybody wants to have the fresh produce at the stores, which is great to have nice, good-looking fresh produce. But apparently, the flash frozen items that you can buy at the store that are packaged and some of the canned goods that are packaged immediately, you know, as soon as the items are picked, there's actually more nutrients there than in the fresh vegetables, yep. which have sat on trucks in warehouses for a period of time before they reach you. Yep, true, um, especially with the, with the frozen fruits. I mean, because they are. I mean, they're picked, and then with the hours, they're frozen, whereas if you're transporting them fresh, the store, the stuff that you're eating was picked probably at least seven days ago, sometimes longer, even when you're talking about leafy greens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that to me is just, you, it's always marketed as fresh, freshly picked just off the farm, farm to table. It's like, yeah, farm to table after two weeks and there's a huge difference in the flavor i actually find with some of the frozen stuff it's more flavorful than the fresh non-frozen produce that you would get uh which is a whole other jam and that's the big buy local movement but out in la i would imagine there are quite a few delicious farmers markets yes. where you can get the ultra fresh yum yum this is true yeah. Yes. yeah but as far as the plant-based movement we're always pushing so much about having enough access to the fresh produce throughout the country maybe we should take a step back and realize if we get the proper frozen items to those stores and the proper canned goods, that actually is a great start and plenty of nutrition. Not that we should neglect getting the good produce as well, though. Sure. Does the idea of maybe trying to figure out how to do that appeal to the old businessman in you? Are they a problem, problem solver? How can we scale this to make it efficient? To scale things and do them efficiently, I try to find other people with the capabilities get say, hey, have you thought about this? And eventually somebody said, yeah, that, let me go work on that. So it's, it's not going to be me doing it. No, not I, you. That's, that's not Jim's to, next To paper. do philanthropy full-time, it's a full-time job. People say, oh, you're retired now. I say, hey, business was easy. At some point, making money is easy. You want to challenge, try to come changing the world. Yeah. And one of my big frustrations over the years has been I've tried to encourage more other high net worth individuals to go into philanthropy and do it full-time. And so many of them, they set up foundations and they hire other people to do all the work for them and they don't do anything. They say, fine, they're giving it away. But what I tell them, oftentimes more so than the money they can give, the talent and skills they had to make that money, we need that to help solve these problems. Mm. So what's next for you? What's the next big problem? Like here in the plant-based community, what's, you know, where's the foundation focused now? What are some specific projects that people should be on the lookout oh, we've for? We've got over 150 projects uh, right now, organizations that we're funding, doing work in o- around 90 countries uh, throughout the world. So keep, and we're doing one or two or more new documentary films every year as well. So 
I see just continuing on that path. Yeah. Um, you know, the only exit I could see is when and if the cultured meets do meet price parity and quality parity. Within 10 or 15 years after that, I would estimate that 85% of the meat that people consume will be coming from the laboratory or lab-grown uh, meats. And within another 15 years or so after that, it'll probably become illegal in most countries to kill animals for food. Which so, theoretically puts that in our lifetime still. And if that does happen, great. I'm back on human rights track again. Right you on. You don't need me over here, but for right now, uh, this is where I'm needed. That's where your focus is, absolutely. Just out of curiosity, when did the Physicians Committee first pop on your radar? It would be not long after I went plant-based. I came across them at a conference, I believe, and uh, hit it off with Neil and loved the work you guys were doing and eventually found about the work you're doing in China. So I said, let me help fund that and uh, been delighted to help with uh, the work there. That's amazing, uh, like how many people attend the events that we organize, Zhao over there in China, like the, the work that he's doing is amazing. Like I had no idea how much of a keen interest there is in health and plant-based eating over in China. But I'm sure, I mean, you've seen the numbers. I mean, he's drawing like tens of thousands and if not hundreds of thousands of people routinely to watch his online webinars and then his bike trips across the country exactly. and making all of these local stops and getting the face-to-face -face time. I remember speaking with him about that early on in the pandemic and was just like, you're doing all this? He's like, yeah. And it was like, that is a really neat approach. I would love to see somebody do that here in the U.S., to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that's amazing yeah, stuff, no, man. He, he's done phenomenal work. Uh, another project I came up with several years ago, in fact, I was at a PCRM event in Los Angeles, a one-day event. A lady sitting next to me was a second-year medical student. She was vegan, and I said, well, there are many people that are vegan that entering your medical school class? She said, no, yeah, maybe one or two per year at most. And I said, well, do you talk with other medical students about plant-based nutrition and how it can help in medicine? She said, oh, yeah, occasionally we'll get to have get-togethers at my place, and um, students will come over, and you know, we'll discuss the issues, read one of the books, talk about it, or watch one of the movies. I said, how do you get them there? And she said, oh, just, you know, I feed them. So it dawned on me, and ended up setting a program. It's called the Taste of Lifestyle Medicine Program. I believe it's being run by ACLM right now. Uh, where there are microgrants, $50 up to $250, to cut for any medical student um, to be able to you know, host a small group of other students and talk about plant-based nutrition you know, that will cover the alcohol and food costs for them. Nice. Look at you. So my view is since they're not getting the training in medical school, find the people that are already vegan entering in medical school, let them do outreach to their other classmates, bypass the formal education side. Yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get a lot more physicians being plant-based when they graduate. Man, that's so important. I was just speaking with Ocean Robbins about that yesterday. He was asking about, you know, what, what could be different. And that was one of the things I said is like, look, you know, you're not going to be able to change anything in terms of like health and, and, you know, the future of medicine until you start incorporating nutrition into the curriculum. And it wasn't until I started doing this show and getting more involved with the Physicians Committee that I understood that there is zero nutrition education among doctors. And oh, that makes worse. it terribly difficult to change the direction that we're headed. Oh, worst yet, uh, in conversation I've had, my understanding is the medical schools, when you talk to this administration about incorporating you know, more modules in um, plant-based nutrition in medicine, 
The response is, we only can offer so many courses because there's only so many hours of lecture time and available for the, you know, the students. And they said, if we put that in, we gotta take something out, which blows my mind. Now, the answer isn't to put in a module on this. Mm. It's that every other module should have a component in it about plant-based nutrition, how it affects it, mm-hmm. versus, you know, oh, here's the medications you need for that. Well, or plant-based nutrition should always be the first option. I'll tell you, the one thing that I do take solace with is the belief that the upcoming generation of doctors who do see value in nutrition are asking questions, and they are pushing to incorporate some of these. Um, And I feel like the dots are starting to slowly be connected for this, this younger upcoming generation. So hopefully, you know, by the time I get ready to leave this world, you know, we will see a more prime focus on healthy eating, lifestyle medicine incorporated into every practice because you do that, healthcare expenditures, I mean, just boom, they plummet. If you have, and it's a fact, I mean, we've said it on the show, Jim, 18 gajillion times that 80% of heart disease cases, deaths are preventable. The leading cause of death. So if you take four out of five of those deaths off the table, imagine the cost savings for everybody. And as you look at it philanthropically, all where would that money go? What good could we do in this world? A lot. I'm curious with all the people you've interviewed and your perspective, having seen so much, do you have any ideas of things that we should be doing different in the movement or something we should be doing that we're not doing to help move the world to plant-based diets on a faster scale? I think that the key is to reach outside of our plant-based circles. It's really easy once you get in this bubble, and I I love the exam roomies, and and I want to continue to grow this community, but I feel like we need to look outside of our walls, and it's so easy to get comfortable being, you know, operating in the space where everybody already understands, and they just, you know, easy to regurgitate facts. That's wonderful. We need to find the right people to be able to reach outside of that and tap into what drew us into this community in the first place. And once you can reach that broader audience, that's when you can really start to see that shift. And I don't know if it takes celebrities. I don't know if it takes more personal testimonials, shows like the exam room, whatever the case may be. But what I do know is we need to go back to that day that that light bulb came on for each of us. Think about that. Think about what that moment was, what that idea was that really made you say, son of a gun. I have been wrong my entire life. I need to do this. And then apply that to other people because you were outside the bubble at that point and something changed your mind. So what was that something? Tap into that something and bring people in. You just touched on something, one of my pet peeves in this movement. A lot of people, when they first go plant-based or vegan, they're frustrated and hurt when they see all the suffering the animals go through and it pushes them to be angry. And you'll see them out there in protest, yelling at people, you know, screaming at them with this anger and hurt that they feel. But the reality is anybody that's ever been in a close relationship knows if you've got a partner that's yelling at you, what do you do? Are you listening intently to what they have to share with you? Or are you saying, hey, back off. I'm not hearing a word you're saying. I don't like being yelled at. The only way, you know, we're not for education and X amount of time. We were them. You're not gonna change an opinion on somebody without empathy and education. No yelling, no getting in somebody's face. It's empathy and education. Yep. And I wish we could get that message out more in our movement uh, to have a more gentle approach. Yeah, I I Persistence is good, but you know, gentle. 
I mean, I, and that's the thing. Like, I understand the reason for the rage. I understand the anger. I absolutely do. But as you just said, think about any argument you've ever been in, whether it's with a spouse, a significant other, a friend, a family member, it doesn't really matter. Nobody likes being yelled at. So when you go to those extremes and you're on the bullhorn and you're up in somebody's face and you're just giving them the riot act, every word that you say, even if it is 100% fact, 100% correct, is in one ear, out the other, if you even get that far. Right, I mean, I've been to horse races before where the people are protesting out front. The reality is, most people that you would ask that are attending horse races would probably tell you they love horses, and they probably do. Yeah. They don't understand the suffering that's going on. So when you're yelling at them that, hey, this is horrible, this that, they're not getting the message. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I have a friend of mine. He's a sports reporter. He, for many years, actually covered horse racing, and he saw some of the stuff online, and, and he just approached me, and he was like, man, you know, there's two sides to all of these stories. You hear about all of these atrocities, but what you guys are missing is the fact that these trainers, these owners genuinely love these animals, and even though they're going at it with the wrong approach, there is still a lot of love there, right. and that makes me think that, wow, if the protesters weren't out there, like really angrily yelling at them and being so combative and confrontational, maybe if it was just like a more gentle approach, a, a healthier dialogue, that then could really start to make some changes occur. I mean, look back on the protests of the 60s. You know, what do we remember more fondly? The people at the sit-ins yep. you know, with the flowers yep. versus the people violence. Absolutely just sitting at the, the lunch counters. In fact, when you talk about reaching out to other groups, it reminded me, several years ago, I was having a conversation with Gloria Steinem, and there was some women's conference coming up, and I asked her if she was going to attend. She said, oh, Jim, no. I don't want to go to places where people agree with me. I want to go to the conferences where nobody agrees with me, mm -hmm. and I can change minds. That's just it. And you go in there, and you're happy, you're professional, you're not combative, you just have conversation. You make new friends. I don't think it needs to be any more difficult than that. Exactly. I really don't. And since I'm also involved in a bunch of documentary films, I'm curious if you have any ideas of something we haven't covered yet in the space. We've got about seven in development right now. but Do you? I mean, so for me, my story is all about food addiction. And I love opening the eyes of people um, when it comes to just, you know, how powerful food can be and how it can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with drugs and alcohol and in a lot of cases, you know, even be more powerful. Like, it was all-consuming. And so when you're talking about something like, I bet you can't eat just one, and they make it fun, and, you know, just kind of like showing people the magic of marketing, you know, when it comes to an unhealthy product and how we all get sucked right in, but because it gets so normalized, we don't understand what it's doing for our health and how we get hooked and how it's just destroying us from inside out. That is my passion. Like, I could talk to you for days about food addiction and being hardwired and spending all of my money at fast food restaurants and being completely out of control, being able to quit smoking way easier than I was able to quit Taco Bell, for instance. So think it through more. So to your audience, what do you think? Chuck starring in a film about food addiction? Oh, I'm game. I, yeah, let's, <laughs> we, we can workshop that. Let's, let's we can workshop that. So you come up with, if you guys have ideas, Send it to this guy. It's uh, at Chuck Carroll WLC, Twitter, Instagram. Well, I think it's called X these days, Instagram, threads, wherever, uh, or Chuck at theweightlosschampion.com, whichever. But, you know, I just, that information needs to get out there. We're talking a lot about food addiction, but I just, 
you hear those two words put together and we've seen books, but I don't think that the full patient experience has truly been told. And every time I just bear my soul and I share that story with people, like it almost moves me to tears. You know, like the feedback that I get from people like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Mm-hmm. I thought I was the only one. No, and I, I've learned over time, I do not have a sweet tooth, even though I love desserts. I acknowledge I have a full-blown sugar addiction. If I have a pint of ice cream in my fridge, vegan ice cream, of course, if I go in to have one spoonful of it, I will eat the entire pint every single time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had a time where one of my kids was you know, staying with me in a guest house behind my property. Middle of the night, I'm hungry, there's no more ice cream. I snuck into where he was, went to the freezer, took the ice cream out and ate it, the one I'd bought for him. That's horrible. And so I try not, basically, I have willpower. If I don't take the first spoonful, I'm okay. So I better, generally, I just don't bite. If it's not in the, you come in my freezer, it's really boring these days. Oh, well, I'd say that's a wise man. Out of sight, out but of I mind. But I will, you know, at a conference like this and, you know, foods around, yeah, I'll enjoy a little here and there. Yeah. Uh, it's, Yeah. We, we, we'll workshop. We'll workshop. I hope that you're going to be at the panel that I'm going to be on here as we record this in, in just a couple of hours. I'll walk you through just how severe that addiction is. Um, and then it ties in also the discussion we were having about um, there not being nutrition education in the medical school curriculums either. Yes. And how quite literally one day I was prescribed a hamburger. Right. I was prescribed a hamburger. So let that sink in. Oh, one of my closest friends growing up. They own the McDonald's franchise in northern Louisiana. Uh-huh. During the summers, every day, we'd go by and we'd get our free quarter pounder with cheese, the fries, the, you know, other food. Yep. And my other friend, he was working across the street. Hey, Mark. Um, and, uh, <laughs> at Wendy's. You know, now, very accomplished lawyer, done huge things. But, yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, yeah, we'd go over and get the frosty over there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I had the Louisiana diet. It was not think, a good thing. think nothing of it. You think nothing of it at the time. It's so normalized. But um, that's a show for another day. But, man, I love your story. I love everything that you've been doing to help so many people in so many arenas. And uh, we've got a link to your foundation in the show description and in the episode notes. So check that out. And uh, thank you, Jim, for the socks. Amazing. Panda, panda, panda. You're the man. It's it was my pleasure. A Thank lot you of so fun, much. man. And you. Uh, you got through it without swearing, except once. So well done, bud. Well you did, done. You did well as, as, as you almost on one. Almost. 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 Yeah. Anyway. That was good. Jim, thanks, my friend. My pleasure. Jim is just the coolest. You should have seen some of the pictures on Jim's phone. I mean, this guy has done some incredible things in his efforts to make the world a healthier place. It, it was really, really, really fun. I can't say who it was, but I will say that there was a doctor on kind of pogo stick boots. I don't know how to describe these things, but very well known, very prominent. And if I said his name, you would recognize him instantly, but I'm going to keep it anonymous because I don't know if he wants people to know that he's jumping around in other people's homes and pogo boots. I don't know how his parents would feel about that, but it is really, really remarkable, the adventures that Jim has had. And he's friends with our friend Tanya O'Callaghan as well. Jim is. So anyway, thank you very much, Jim Greenbaum. You are a joy and a treat. And I have worn those socks with pride, my friend. Thank you so very much for your generous gift. 
And speaking of generous gifts, don't forget it is Giving Tuesday, November 28th. It is not too late if you're listening to this on the first day of the podcast. You can head over to pcrm.org slash ER to have your donations automatically doubled to support the Exam Room podcast and all of the life-changing and life-saving work that the Physicians Committee does. So pcrm.org slash ER. And there's a link to that right now in the episode notes. And thank you so very much for your generosity on this Giving Tuesday. Now let's turn our attention to some health news where a new study finds that ultra processed foods can increase the risk of certain types of cancer. Cancers that we don't often think about when it comes to diet related diseases. So this study comes to us from the University of Bristol and the International Agency for Research on Cancer. And it follows the diets and lifestyles of 450,000 adults for about 14 years. And the results from this analysis show that eating 10%, 10% more ultra-processed foods can be associated with a 23% higher risk of head and neck cancer and a 24% higher risk of esophageal adenocarcinoma. And you may be thinking, well, ultra-processed foods, can't we just chalk that up to obesity? Not so fast, my friend, because obesity does not necessarily appear to be at least the exclusive culprit here. In fact, these researchers say that increased body fat only explained a small portion of the association between these ultra-processed foods and the risk of these cancers. And while they caution that further research is needed, the authors do suggest that other mechanisms could explain these higher rates, such as additives in the food like emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners, both of which, by the way, have been previously linked to increased risks of disease. Another potential factor here, especially for what they call upper aerodigestive tract cancers, well, it could be contaminants from the food packaging and manufacturing processes. Dr. Helen Croker, Assistant Director of Research and Policy at the World Cancer Research Fund, sums up this study. She says, quote, This study adds to a growing pool of evidence suggesting a link between ultra-processed foods and cancer risk. The association between higher consumption of ultra-processed foods and increased risk of developing upper aerodigestive tract cancers supports our cancer prevention recommendations to eat a healthy diet that is rich in whole grains, vegetables, fruit, and beans. And there's a link for you to check out the full study right now in the episode notes. Dr. Neil Barnard will join us on the exam room live. That will be on Wednesday. So make sure to mark your calendars noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, or grab the replay right back here first thing on Thursday. But if you would like to drop a question in the doctor's mailbag, if you could head over to the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel or Facebook page, meet us there Wednesday at noon Eastern. That would be your best opportunity to do it. And don't forget to become an exam room VIP. That is for free, F-R-E-E. You will get early access to tickets to our live shows like the ones we did in LA, New York, and most recently, Washington, D.C. with the Esselstons. Plus, you will get exclusive early access to some of our premium interviews, including the one with Dr. Michael Greger two weeks before anyone else. And that is available right now, my friends, but exclusively for exam room 
VIPs. If you want to get in on this two weeks before anybody else, just head over to pcrm.org slash exam room VIP. That's pcrm.org slash exam room VIP, or click the link in the episode notes. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to my main man, Jim Greenbaum, for being here and raising our health IQs and our philanthropic efforts. You the man, Jim. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>